Let me pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that you love us and that you are reaching out towards us, that you long to draw us to yourself. I thank you for Jesus Christ, the gift that you have given to us and all of the grace that flows through him. And so, Father, as I'm speaking this morning, I want to glorify Jesus Christ, open our hearts to him. And so, Lord, I pray that God, both in my communicating and in the hearing, that God, your Holy Spirit, might effectively make that happen so that we would have a revelation, God, that would change and transform our lives. God, I declare that that's going to happen without any satanic interference or demonic influence. But God, instead, the Holy Spirit is going to be at work opening every heart today in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. So let me tell you about the sermon I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach, though I would really love to, but I'm going to keep things short. So I would really love to preach and take us into the book of Colossians, be able to open it up. In that book, Paul, he brings up the topic of baptism in the midst of a celebration of Christ. He brings warnings to the church, and he brings an admonition to the church to make this a reality uh, within their lives. He's first of all celebrating the fact that because of their faith in Christ, they were overflowing with the love of Christ, And that love was being inspired because of their hope in Christ. And so his prayer for them was that that would just continue to increase. That their knowledge of God would increase. That their love for God would increase. That their labor for Christ would increase. That the fruits would increase. That their patience and their endurance would increase. So that they would be overflowing and with joy and thanksgiving because they were actually entering into the full reality that they had been redeemed from the kingdom of darkness and they had been brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom they have forgiveness of sins, redemption of their life and forgiveness of sins. And so He calls them to look at Christ. He says, focus on Christ. All of God's focus, all of God's purpose is found in Christ. And so he does a whole poem kind of to set the stage which just simply focuses on the supremacy of Christ, that he is the heir of all creation. He is the center focus of God's heart. He is the one that God has made to be head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has opened up for us the gates of eternal life. He has brought us in, and it's through Him that we have redemption. It's through Him we have forgiveness. It's through Him we have hope. So there's a whole celebration in there. I I really want to encourage you that having been baptized, you would go back and you would begin to take a look at that and actually saturate your minds in it. In chapter 2, he then goes on to say that He warns believers to be on their guard against any kind of human philosophy, any tradition, any religious superstition that would draw them as believers away from their devotion and their fascination with Christ himself. And so that they would put their complete confidence in him and they would not allow themselves to be seen as lacking anything. 
So I want to say this about the Christian faith. It's not about striving for something we're lacking. It's about celebrating and unpackaging the fullness of what we have. We have Christ living inside of us. We lack nothing. It's drawing from his strength. It's drawing from his, his finished works. It's drawing from his forgiveness. It's drawing from his grace. It's drawing from his victory. You lack nothing. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in him. Don't meet any situation, any challenge, any task with a sense of inferiority, inadequacy, weakness, or lack. You have all that you need in Christ. And so Paul warns them, understand, the old, weak, powerless, sinful self has been crucified with Christ and buried. The overcoming, glorified life of Christ now rises within you. Draw from that. And don't let anybody teach you any kind of philosophy, any kind of something that sounds wise, sounds religious, sounds spiritual, but its focus is not on Christ. Don't let it happen. Now, this is the sermon I'm not preaching. In addition, he, he warns us to not be led away by any kind of religious teaching that would train you to depend on self-will and self-effort. All the religious stuff that's all about trying in your own willpower and strength to suppress your sin nature through stringent rules and self-denial rather than relying fully on what Christ has done for you and who Christ is in you. Why are you expending so much effort to suppress a sin nature that was crucified on the cross and buried with Christ? Why not you instead focus on releasing the power of the living Christ who is now living inside of you? So baptism answers all the questions and addresses all the issues in relationship to that. In baptism, we declare that we died with Christ. Our sin was paid for. Justice of the law was satisfied. Our sin nature destroyed and buried. Our righteousness secured as a gift from God. We were raised by the power of God to a new life, a life empowered unto righteousness and holiness by the power of the Spirit of the life of Christ living inside of us. Baptism answers all of this. And then in chapter 3, He talks to you about now that you're raised from the dead, your life should completely change. You should become focused and fascinated with the fact that you are now alive unto God and you have an eternal inheritance. Your mind should be captured by that. Your affection should be grabbed by that. And you should be going after that. Because Christ is living in you, what you want to do is completely shed everything that was of the old life, the before life Christ, and you want to now take on every expression of what it means that Christ is now living in you. You want to become like Him because you can. Because you can. And that's not just a bunch of behaviors. That's your attitudes, your motives, your relationship with God, everything. You want to shed everything that has to do with sin, with immorality, with impurity. You want to shed everything that has to do with anger and strife and bitterness. You don't get rid of it all. Anything that's there, anytime you see it, you don't have to live with it anymore. Hallelujah. And every time you have a holy desire that's running into that old way of living, 
it's going to have to move because that which is in you is greater. It's greater than any power of sin. Hallelujah. Now that's the sermon I'm not preaching. What I want to do is I want to turn. I already talked to you guys about this, but we're going to go back to it. So I'm going to turn, hallelujah, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Hallelujah. All right, so I'm starting in verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So it said, Christ also suffered. The reason why it says that is because Peter is talking to believers who are living in a, an environment that is involves persecution and opposition, and they are suffering. So he wants them to know you're not alone. In fact, Christ went first. Christ also suffered in redeeming you. And so he's encouraging them. It says Christ suffered once for sins. Some of your versions will say Christ died, but the actual root is, is his suffering, which led to his death. He suffered once for sin. His suffering and his death fulfilled God's predetermined plans, satisfying sin's penalty and destroying its power over our lives. He suffered once for sins, to free us from sin. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, though he was sinless, he took man's sin upon himself so that through faith, by faith in his suffering and his death, man might be made free from the power of sin. Man might be made righteous before God as a gift. Christ suffered once for sins, and then it says, being put to death in the flesh. In becoming man, Christ took on mortal flesh. It was subject to death. And in going to the cross, he died a physical death for you. It says Christ suffered once for sin, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So through death, in his mortal body, he died. In the grave, his mortal body was buried. After his, he rose, he had a physical body. And yet it was no longer mortal. It was no longer corruptible. It was no longer made from the earth and suited for the earth. If you read the story after Christ's resurrection, you kind of recognize his body's doing a few things that our bodies can't do. It's going through the wall. It's ascending into heaven. It's sitting and eating, breaks bread, and then disappears. It's a body, but it's no longer a mortal body. It's no longer an earthbound body. 
it is a resurrected, glorified body, like the body that you are going to receive. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 42 to 47. First we have the natural, then we have the spiritual. We have, first of all, we had the natural Adam, who was a living being, but now we have Christ raised from the dead, a life-giving spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and preached to spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the great patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, Noah's family, were brought safely through the water. Now let me just say, this is a difficult verse to understand. Let me say, Peter was trying to use an illustration to help us understand something that was a little bit more complex, something spiritual. This is one of the times I think it would have been better if Peter had not used an illustration. (laughs) However, it is here and we're going to take a look at it. Not all Bible scholars agree on what it means. So I'm not going to try and agree with everybody. However, it refers to those who disobeyed Noah's warning and were destroyed in the flood. It's talking about either Christ went in the Spirit after His death and preached to those in the underworld, specifically to imprisoned spirits of those that during the time of Noah disobeyed God's warning and were destroyed in the flood. So He went in the Spirit after He had died when He went into the grave. And there's some scriptures that kind of allude to something like that. Or, as I think more likely, it's talking about at the time of Noah... The Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to those who were at that time disobedient to the warning, to those who through death have now become imprisoned spirits. But let's understand that there's some uncertainty about that, but I want to move forward to some certainty. We do know that these spirits were now imprisoned and that they belonged to those who Noah preached to in his day, those who were disobedient, those who died in the flood. Those who were in Noah's day and heard him issue the warning about God's coming judgment against man's sin. Those who heard Noah call them to repentance, calling them to come into the ark and be saved. These were those who rationalized away the warning of God's judgment against man's sin. They mocked at Noah. They mocked at his lifelong preparations. They continued to eat and drink, the Scripture said, and carry on with life and its celebrations, completely oblivious to the fact that the warnings that Noah was preaching and the salvation that was offered was real. These were those who God was patient with, giving them 120 years during the construction of that ark to hear the message and be obedient to it to repent and to come into the ark. The Bible says that we live in exactly the same days when people are going to hear the sound of my preaching even this morning and they're going to say, let's get on with the baptism, let's do this thing, completely unaware that history is moving very quickly towards a, a coming judgment that is coming upon all wickedness within this world. That Jesus Christ, according to His promise, is returning and setting up his kingdom and driving out all that which is evil and that which is wicked. And the Bible says that very much that same same attitude towards the warning and the preaching of the gospel, that same 
disregard and neglect, not only outside the church, but inside the church, regarding that coming day is going to exist. These were those who refused to heed the warning, those who disobeyed the good news that was being preached to them. Today we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we have forgiveness of sins. Today we have freedom from the power of sin. Today we have transformation of life. We have the empowerment to live for God, to serve for God, and the confidence of eternal life. That is the gospel we have preached today. Their gospel was that judgment is coming in relationship to man's wickedness. You need to repent and you need to be in the ark of safety. The gospel was preached to them just as it was to us. And many within that generation refused to obey its warning. These were those who perished in the flood and only just a few were saved. In fact, only eight persons were saved. Only eight persons survived the flood and only because they were in the ark. So I now want to go to verse 21. You with me? Moving ahead. He says, corresponding to that, corresponding to the rescue through the flood, and I'm reading right now from the Amplified Version just to amplify it. So corresponding to that, the rescue through the flood, baptism, which is an expression of a believer's new life in Christ, now saves you. Not by removing dirt from the body, but by an appeal to God for a good or a clean conscience, demonstrating what you believe to be yours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, that is the place of honor and authority with all angels, authorities, and powers being made subservient to him. So I just want to talk about the story of Noah just for a moment. So walk with me here. In Noah, we have the story of a righteous man living in a wicked world. We can read it in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. In verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God created an earth. He created a world that was good. He created mankind and it was very good. He created the world and he blessed them so that they could multiply and fill the earth with his goodness and his glory. Instead, man had turned away from God and now man was incubating wickedness at an exponential rate so that wickedness was filling every thought and imagination of man's heart. Understand that when wickedness prevails, victimization prevails. There are cries coming from the face of the earth, from mankind that was supposed to know the goodness and glory of God, now that are experiencing the wickedness and abuse of evil. And it's grieving the heart of God that this has come into his creation. And he has made a decision that he's going to bring about judgment and and wipe the face of the earth. But it says that in verse 8, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of God. I want you to notice in the verse below 
that all flesh had corrupted their way. It says all flesh has corrupted their way. I want you to know that Noah was not chosen because he was more righteous than everybody else. It says all flesh had corrupted their way. I want you to know that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God chose him and selected him because God knew that Noah would respond to his warning. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And God provided him with a warning. And, and Noah, by faith, responded to the warning. Noah, by faith, began to prepare an ark for the saving of his family. Noah, by faith, began to warn his generation of the coming judgment. Noah, by faith, had to resist all of the opposition that was against him in his day and to continue to remain obedient to the warning of God and pursue the promise of salvation that God had gave him. And by doing that, Noah became righteous by faith. It was his pursuit of faith in God that shaped this man. Noah distinguished himself from the wickedness of his generation and he alone, along with his family, by faith found salvation from the judgment that fell upon the earth in those days. So that verse I was referring to was in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It says, we see in these scriptures that with the warning that was offered to Noah came a way of escape. God did not just simply rescue Noah. He didn't just simply rescue Noah. Instead, through grace, he warned Noah of a judgment. He told him the good news of salvation he showed him the way of escape and empowered him to respond in faith. And through faith, Noah was declared righteous. And by faith, he prepared the ark. Let me read you from Hebrews. It says, by faith, Hebrews eleven seven, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Consider the faith that this required on Noah's part. Faith both in God's warning of impending judgment and also in the good news of salvation. Only by faith could Noah be saved. By faith, Noah invested the rest of his life in preparation. By faith, Noah constructed the ark to exact specifications. By faith, Noah heeded God's warning and pursued God's promise. Through a life of hardship, toil, ridicule, persecution, and rejection, Noah pursued, by faith, the promise of God. Had Noah, through unbelief, ignored God's warning, he and his family would have perished. Should Noah, through unbelief, have failed to be diligent or failed to pers persevere in faith, he would not have been saved. Should his faith have succumbed to human logic, earthly wisdom, scientific argument, there just had never been rain on the face of the earth. What are you building a boat for? 
or social rejection, if he had a given way in any way to unbelief, he would have perished along with his generation. It required his faith. It required perseverance in faith. It required the obedience of faith. Should he have sought to devise his own salvation through any other means, he would not have survived the total devastation that came upon the earth. I didn't write them all down, but I let my imagination run. Take swimming lessons, gather a whole bunch of sandbags, climb to a mountain, build a castle at the top. No other means except obedience to building the ark would have saved him. No other means, no other self-help program, build the ark, get in the ark. Should he have been preoccupied by other earthly concerns, went on a three-day vacation, involved in a business venture, just not available when God said, get in the ark, I'm shutting the door, he would have perished. By faith, Noah had to prepare and persevere and then enter into the ark. So in many ways, the story of Noah exemplifies and clarifies the reality of baptism. So now I want to come back to you guys and just talk. The act of being immersed in water does not save you. In the story of Noah, in fact, those immersed in the water perished. It's not about being immersed in the water. We don't hold superstitious belief about the act of baptism. While we anticipate the power of the Holy Spirit is going to fall on each one of you as you express your faith through this act of obedience, if one goes into those waters of baptism and their heart is hard and indifferent towards God, They'll go into the water, they'll come out of the water, and they'll still be hard and indifferent towards God. The religious act of doing baptism has no power to do anything in a person's life. It's not the act itself, but it's what you are declaring from the conviction of your heart as an act of faith that has the saving power. It's identification by faith with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as your reality which your life is now becoming completely immersed in that has the saving power within your life. Choose to forget it. Choose to drift away from it and you will begin to experience the influences of the world and the mastery of sin beginning to regain in your life. Return to it and remember the conviction with which you went into the waters of baptism, that you have died to the old nature, you have died to sin, you are alive to Christ and He lives in you, you regain your conviction and you will begin to see the saving power of Christ rise within your life again. Stay in that place and you will experience the saving power of Christ in your life day by day, overcoming sin, overcoming the world because the he that is in you is greater than the he that is in the world. The water itself has no unique properties. 
We did not do some kind of a potion mix in it. We did not bless it in a holy, special way. It has no special properties. It has no formula to cleanse away your sins. It is your conviction that Jesus Christ died for you and that you died with him that places you with Christ on that cross. Your sin paid for. The law's justice satisfied. Satan's hold broken completely. Demonic powers absolutely disarmed regarding your life. Hallelujah. The sin nature crucified and buried so that you rise righteous. You rise in the power of righteousness. You rise with the life of Christ within you. It is that conviction that brings you in to the cleansing, to the renewal, to the peace with God, to the access to His grace, and all of the power of Christ living within inside of you. This simply is an act that you are doing as an answer, as an answer of your conscience before God that you can that was done publicly, that was done purposefully, and that you could always refer to. I was talking to a person the other day just simply going through examples of when you, when you fall and when you fail and you struggle in an area and it's come against you and you're faced with that shame. Remember your baptism. Remember that you were crucified and buried with Christ. Remember that you're no longer the same. Don't let the enemy accuse you or define you by the failure that you've had. But instead, give glory to God that you are now a new creation and you have the power to overcome and stand in the power of that baptism. No matter what comes against you, you can always refer back to what you have declared through your baptism. You can stand in the reality of it and you will experience the power of it by faith within your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The significant truth about baptism found here is not that Noah and his family were saved because of their goodness or their righteousness. We've explained some different situations that regardless of how good or how righteous they might have been, if they were not in the ark, they would not have been saved. The difference between them and those that perished were that they had prepared the ark by faith and they were in the ark the day that the judgment fell. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And for you, it is not because of your righteousness or your goodness. It makes no difference whether you're having a good day or a bad day, where you feel like you're really moving ahead or you're struggling and just trying to keep your head above water. It doesn't matter. Your salvation is because God has placed you in Christ. Your favor with God is because He has placed you in Christ. Your hope of glory is because He has placed you in Christ and Christ now lives inside of you. Your righteousness before God, your hope of transformation, your expectation of living in His eternal kingdom and reigning with Him, it is not based on your willpower and your ability to strive and overcome or suppress and keep under. It's on the fact that God has placed you in Christ and Christ now lives in you and you are more than conquerors through Him who loved you and gave Himself for you. Hallelujah. And so we live our lives. Hallelujah. To tap into this reality. To declare over our lives. Hallelujah. The power 
of the finished works of Christ and his death for us. Hallelujah. To live in its glory and live in its victory. We live our lives, hallelujah, to tap into the power of his life living within us and to draw from that. So any area of weakness and failure I find in myself is not a reason, hallelujah, for sensing defeat or feeling condemned. No, that is a moment and an opportunity to draw from the life of Christ within you and say that area, that weakness must give way to this life that lives within inside of me. It's opportunity, it's opportunity, it's potential all of the way. Hallelujah. Because you are not lacking anything. You have everything that you need for life and for godliness through your relationship depending and drawing from the reality that Christ now lives within inside of you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, whatever gain I have, I counted loss. Whatever it was I relied on outside of Christ, hallelujah, flushing it down the toilet and it's gone. I'll tell you what I'm going for, hallelujah. I'm counting all things but loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus for my, as my Lord. For his sake I suffer the loss of all things. I count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. That by His grace, I have been placed into Christ. Hallelujah. So baptism provides, hallelujah, the only sure, confident, joyful answer for our consciences Longing to stand bold and blameless, free from the fear of judgment or condemnation. Powerful and empowered before the eyes of God. It's the only answer. Hallelujah. I died with Christ, who died for me. I was raised with Christ, who was raised for me. I live by the power of the life of Christ, who lives within me. I have confidence in my relationship with God. Hallelujah. 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 So let me just say this to you. Hallelujah. Maybe for years you've been found in church, but you have no idea what it means to be found in Christ. I want you to know those in church will perish. Only those in Christ will be saved. Only those in Christ. Maybe for years you've been striving, feeling like you're lacking, knowing that the call on your life was greater than what it was that you were living, and certainly there has to be more for living, to living for Christ than simply going to church or, and maybe participating in some program or even providing leadership. There's got to be more. There's got to be more victory. There's got to be more power. There's got to be more adventure. There's got to be more conquering. There's got to be more to this life. And what you've been doing is you've been trying to face all the issues going on in the inside of you by taking the principles of the world mixed with your, the principles of the Word of God mixed with your willpower and your determination and trying to convert your life. And now what you've done is you've just lowered your level of expectation 
to kind of the status quo is I'm as good as they are. I go to church as much as they do. I have the same, uh, you know, or better moral standard than they do. But you know, that's just being disillusioned because you don't actually know the power of what I'm talking about in your life. Hallelujah. I want you to know today it's time for you to repent, have a change of mind, put your focus in a different place, put your faith on something else other than yourself and your efforts and your righteousness and your works and your self-effort and your willpower. I want you to know it's time to understand what it means to be in Christ and begin to draw from that power. Hallelujah. And so today, as these guys go into the water, hallelujah, maybe the rest of you can jump in too. If not physically... At least in your heart. Some people come to me and they say, you know, Pastor Bob, after you've taught on baptism, man, I just want to jump into that water again. Can I get baptized again? And my answer is the same as Paul in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know? Well, then it's time that you do know. We don't need to put you in the water again. You just need, hallelujah, to grasp the reality of it and dive in. Just grasp the reality of it. And so I'm actually saying when these guys go into the water, hallelujah, not physically, hallelujah, but in your spirit, you dive into that water with them. Declare, hallelujah, this is what my baptism meant. I have died to the old nature and I have risen Hallelujah, to the power of the life of Christ within me. It's not about religion. It's not about self-worship. Hallelujah, and will worship. It is about worshiping Christ who lives within me, who has the preeminence. Hallelujah, the only one, hallelujah, who has authority over all principalities and powers and all the works of the enemy. And he is the head of the church and he is the life within me. Blessed be his name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.